be free. Free at last. It's important to understand that when we speak the truth, it needs to be defined in the Hebrew sense rather than the Greek sense. And let me suggest the difference. Truth in the Greek sense is intellectual. To know the meaning of words. To know all of the data, or is it data? Whatever. To know all of those things. This definition says you really know the truth if you practice it. That's the Greek sense. If you practice it, if you're living it, if someone sees you walking in the street and talking to a friend and, and happens to overhear you, he may hear the truth. Listen to this. When a person is set free, they live and act in harmony with the purpose for which they were created. Did you get that? Let me repeat that. When a person is set free, they live and act in harmony with the purpose for which they were created. A set free person expresses his being made in the image of God. When you look at me, and when you turn around and look at others in this uh, congregation this morning, you need to see a person who has been set free, made in the image of God, and I am walking per that purpose which God made me. We were not meant to be sinners. So when we sin, we are not free. It's an expression of freedom to be kind to someone. It's an expression of slavery to be mean and hateful and oppressive. It's an expression of freedom to use wholesome words rather than crude, smutty, Dirty language, because these are words of bondage. That's characteristic number one. A true disciple is the person who has been set free. Jesus says, in verse 34, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave of sin. But the second thing I want to mention is a true disciple has a zeal for God. Now the word zeal is a passionate word. It means to burn. It means to have fire in your bones. And when you've got fire in your bones, you really express it. And people can see something different, wholly different. One of the central messages to the church at Laodicea was be zealous and repent, or burn and repent.
half-heartedness and lukewarmness doesn't do it. Jesus himself said, zeal for your house has eaten me up. The world tells us, don't be a fanatic. Don't be a Bible thumper, whatever that is. Don't be a fundamentalist weirdo. I like to ask, are there any zealots for God? Are there any zealots for God? Well, that's number two. A true disciple has a zeal for God. Thirdly, a true disciple has a profound faith in a living God. When the world says impossible, faith says, well, if that's the only problem, then it can be done. And someone said, an oak tree is just a little nut that refused to give up. <laughs> Are you an oak tree? The scripture reminds us without faith it's impossible to please God. How many times did you please God this past week? If it wasn't living by faith this past week, on what basis did you then live? And whenever I ask myself that kind of a question, I kind of shudder a little bit as I wonder, was I truly living by faith this past week? Well, fourthly, a true disciple has a deep love for fellow Christians. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, John 13, 35. This is the love that takes others into consideration. It's the kind of love that covers a multitude of sins. It's the kind of love that 1 Corinthians 13 speaks of. Fifteen characteristics of love enumerated in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. It's kind. Love is without envy. It doesn't brag. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs done. It isn't proud, etc., etc. And without this kind of love, discipleship would be a cold, legalistic ritual. It would lack a deep reality. When Kathleen was recovering from her stroke at John Muir Hospital, about uh, 20 plus years ago, the whole floor got to know a little of what Christian love was all about. A few Christians came over with their guitars and gave a little Christian concert in Kathleen's room. On another day, after getting permission from the doctor and the floor staff, we wheeled Kathleen into a larger room and held a Bible study with a group of other Christians. Many of the hospital staff came and observed and listened and were profoundly moved. Friends, keep on loving. Keep on loving one another. I want to say a little few words about bondage and freedom. 
Jesus says in verse 34 of our reading, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is the slave of sin. To practice sin is to experience a bondage. A person is really free when sin no longer rules over him. It doesn't mean that that person has become perfect all of a sudden. It means sin no longer dominates him. That is not the thrust of his life. The thrust of his life is to obey God. The person who chooses freely to take drugs and is now an addict, is he free? He freely chose. So has he become free? The person who chooses freely to live a life of sexual immorality and who now has a disease, is he free? The person who chooses a lifestyle of crime and is now in a penitentiary, is he free? The person who seeks to earn his salvation apart from the grace of God, is he really free? Or is he in bondage of trying to pay a price which he'll never be able to pay? When a person says or thinks, I'll do what I want, it's my life. When that person won't listen to wise counsel and then makes choices that are harmful, is he really free? As verse 34 told us, the truth of the matter is that sin enslaves. Aren't you glad that Jesus tells us the truth? Amen. Our part is to believe what he told us. The third basic that I want to talk about is real freedom. And maybe we can put on the board 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 12 to 14. Great verse. At first reading, it sounds a little strange. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. I will not be mastered by anything. Verse 13, here's the strange verse, which I think is so wonderful. Food is for the stomach, and stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Verse 12 tells us that though there may be a lot of desirable toys in life, we are not to be mastered by our desire for those toys. Why? Because even if the toys are not sinful in themselves, to be mastered by that desire 
is to enter into a new bondage. So you might ask, how does Paul define freedom? And what is real freedom? And I want you to notice that verse 13 again. It's a strange verse. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. What in the world are you talking about, Paul? What are you talking about? What do you mean? Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. Paul here is defining freedom in terms of purpose. In terms of something that is designed or made for. And please follow me here. The purpose of food is to be eaten, to be ingested, and the stomach is a normal place for food in order that the digestive process may begin. This is the way we were designed by God. We live in a world that, where everything has a design and a function. For example, you don't set a little old fish free by taking it from a body of water and letting it experience dry land, do you? How terrible not to allow that fish to be set free in order that it might experience a change that it's never, been, never had experienced before. Well, fish were designed for water. And water was designed for fish. It's elementary, Watson, right? Fish are freest when they're doing what they're designed to do. And maybe we don't know how fish really feel, you know, in the ocean or whether they feel enslaved. What we do know is that when we change their environment in which they were created, they die rather quickly. Here's the punchline. Folks, you and I are most free when we are in harmony with the reason for which we were created. And Paul says in our passage that the purpose for the body is not sexual immorality, but our body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. We were made in the image of God and we are made to glorify God and we are most free, we are most happy, we are most blessed, we are most congruent when we glorify God in everything. The purpose for our body is not drunkenness or drug addiction. The purpose for our body and for our lives was not to live in conflict and slavery. Our, the purpose for our lives was not to live in alienation from God. The great reason for the unhappiness in our world is because the purpose of God for our lives has been violated. God's purpose for our lives has been violated. Paul wrote these words, this text, to a very immoral city. They thought they were liberated. The people's lifestyle was characterized by immorality. The philosophers and thinkers and pagan religious leaders saw nothing wrong with sexual immorality, gross idolatry, a hedonistic lifestyle. And it was to this kind of people 
with this kind of lifestyle that Paul announces his great principles relating to freedom. First of all, he will not be mastered by anything. Nothing is to master us. Real freedom has the highest good for the individual as its goal. Real freedom does not enslave, rather it releases. Real freedom has purpose. God wants to bring us into line for the fulfillment of the purpose for which we were created. I'd like to close by asking the question suggested by verse 36. And let's reread verse 36. So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Be free indeed. First, I'd like us to notice that people can have a false sense of freedom. And I'd like to just go over this passage just a little bit, very quickly. These dear Jewish folks said, well, we're related to Abraham. I'm a relative of Abraham. I have his DNA in my body. Or we might say in our day and age, I was brought up in a Christian home. I was baptized. I'm a church member. I give money to the church occasionally. I'm not a bad person. All of this certainly should count for something. It's with these kinds of credentials that people argued in verse 33. How is it that you say you will become free? And I guess they were implying by that, we're already free, and we don't need to be told that we need to become free. We're already free. What do you mean we got to become free? Or perhaps they may have said, why don't you preach this stuff to the Samaritans? or to the street people, or to the drunks on Skid Row. They're the ones that need to be set free. Well, yes, but so do some other folks. And Jesus reminds them of several things in the balance of John chapter 8. I noticed five things that suggest a slavery to sin. These dear people had hatred in their hearts. They wanted to kill Jesus. Verse 37. They had no room for his teaching. They were turning Jesus off. They did not reflect in their life Abraham-like deeds. And what were some of Abraham-like deeds? Well, to begin with, he was very obedient. He was obedient. Remember, God asked him to take his son, his only son, whom you love, take him up and uh, offer him on the mount. And he began to walk, the walk of obedience, in fulfillment of that command request of God. 
But they did not reflect in their life Abraham-like deeds. They failed to love Jesus because they didn't know God as Father. They weren't in the family that really mattered. And godly people hear God's words. They were not godly. You can see that in verse 47. These people had a false sense of freedom. They were relying on wrong things for freedom. But what does it mean to be free indeed? In verse 36, we have introduced to us the great liberator. His name is not Abraham Lincoln. His name is Jesus. He's the great freedom giver. He's the great emancipator. When the Son sets us free, when he unties the shackles, when he removes the chains, and when he says to us, you're forgiven, then we're free indeed. To be free indeed means the Lord Jesus himself has personally come into my life. We need him to personally respond to our need because he is the only one who can free us. It means that my former lifestyle is a thing of the past. And again, I want to say this doesn't mean perfection, but rather that the Lord Jesus and the kingdom of God have become foremost in my life. To be free indeed is to have a permanent place in the family of God. To be free indeed means to have God as our Father. To be free indeed means to belong to God and to hear what God says. You remember when you came to the Lord and you asked the Lord to come into your life? When you ask the Lord to save you, it is then that you became free to be and be able to say, free at last. Free, free at last. Thank God I'm free. Are you thanking God this morning that he has set you free? That you are in a new family and that new family is not a family or a place of bondage, but it's a place of great freedom. Thank God we're free today to worship him. We're free today to say those words, thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you for making me whole. And thank you for giving to me Life that is free. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for setting us free. Thank you for bringing us into your family. Thank you, Father, for taking the chains off. Thank you, dear Father in heaven, for all that you have done for us. Thank you, Father, for bringing us into a body of 
believers with whom I can fellowship and have good association. Father, we pray for this world of ours. We pray for this community of ours. We pray for this state of ours. Lord, there are so many in these associations that need to be set free. And we pray, Father, that you would help us. Help us to be those who, having been sent by you, can preach the message of liberation to be set free from the sin that, with which we have become entangled and have us run with patience the race that is set before us. Bless this congregation of your people, Father. Fill them with the joy of liberation. Thank you. And dismiss us now with your blessing. For we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.